Book Three, Chapter Two of the Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood, Book Three, Hermit and Heretic, eighteen sixty to eighteen seventy. Chapter Two, Munel Pulvelis, eighteen sixty-two, recording by Shyan Arrowsmith. After an autumn among the Alps, hearing that the Turner drawings in the National Gallery had been mildewed, he ran home to see about them in January eighteen sixty-two, and was kept until the end of May. He found that his political economy work was not such a total failure as it had seemed. Froude, then editor of Fraser's magazine, thought there was something in it and would give him another chance. So, by way of a fresh start, he had his four Conkill articles published in book form, and almost simultaneously in June 1862, the first of the new series appeared. The author had then returned to Lucerne with Mr. and Mrs. Byrne Jones, with whom he crossed the St. Gothard to Milan, where he tried to forget the harrowing of hell in a close study of Luini and in copying the St. Catherine now at Oxford. Ruskin has never said so much about Luini as perhaps he intended. A short notice in the Cestus of Argalia and occasional references scattered up and down his later works hardly give the prominence in his writings that the painter held in his thoughts it was about this time that he was made an honorary member of the florentine academy he recrossed the alps and settled to his work on political economy at monex where he spent the winter except for a short run home which gave him the opportunity of addressing the working man's college on november the twenty ninth his retreat is described in one of his letters home mornex august the thirty first eighteen sixty two my dearest mother this ought to arrive on the evening before your birthday it is not possible to reach you in the morning not even by telegraph as i once did from bonsuny for may heaven be devoutly thanked therefore there are yet among salève neither rails or wires the place i have got to is at the end of all carriage roads and i am not yet strong enough to get farther on foot than a five or six mile circle within which is assuredly no house to my mind I cast at first somewhat longing eyes on the true Savoyard Chateau, notable for its lovely garden and orchard, and its unspoiled, unrestored, arched gateway between two round turrets and a Gothic windowed keep. But on examination of the interior, finding the walls, though six feet thick, rent to the foundation, and as cold as rocks and the floors all sodden through with walnut oil and rotten apple juice heaps of the farm stores 
having been left to decay in a ci-devant drawing-room. I gave up all medieval ideas, for which the long-legged black pigs, who lived like gentlemen at ease in a passage, and the bats and spiders who divided between them the corners of the terraced stair, have reason, if they knew it, to be thankful. The worst of it is that I never had the gift, nor have I now the energy to make anything of a place, so that I shall have to put up with almost anything I can find that is healthily habitable in a good situation. Meanwhile, the air here being delicious and the rooms good enough for use and comfort, I am not troubling myself much, but trying to put myself into better health and humour in which I have already a little succeeded. After describing the flowers of the Saleb, he continues, My father would be quite wild at the view from the garden terrace, but he would be disgusted at the shut-in feeling of the house, which is in fact as much shut-in as our old hung hill one only to get the view I have, but to go as far down the garden as to our old mulberry tree. By the way, there is a magnificent mulberry tree, as big as a common walnut, covered with black and red fruit on the other side of the road. Coute and Ellen are very anxious to do all they can, now that Crawley is away, and I don't think I shall manage very badly etc. A little later he took in addition a cottage in which the Empress of Russia had once stayed. It commanded a finer view than the larger house, which has since been turned into a hotel, Hôtel et Pension de Glycine. This place was for some time the hermitage in which he wrote his political economy. Of his lonely rambles, he wrote later on. If I have a definite point to reach and common work to do at it, I take people, anybody, with me. But all my best mental work is necessarily done alone. Whenever I wanted to think in Savoie, I used to leave Coute at home. Constantly I have been alone on the glacier de bois and far among the loneliest aiguille recesses i found the path up the braison above bonneville in a lonely walk one sunday i saw the grandest view of the alps of savoie i ever gained on the second of january eighteen sixty two alone among the snow wreaths on the summit of the salève you need not fear for me on Lawndale Pikes after that. In September, the second article appeared in Fraser. Only a genius like Mr. Ruskin could have produced such hopeless rubbish, says a newspaper of the period. Far worse than any newspaper criticism was the condemnation of Denmark Hugh. His father, whose eyes had glistened over early poems and prose eloquence, strongly disapproved of this heretical economy. It was a bitter thing that his son should become a prodigal of a hardly earned repetition and be pointed at 
for a fool. And it was intensely painful for a son who had never given his father a pun that could be avoided, as old Mr. Ruskin had once written, to find his father with one foot in the grave turning against him. In December, the third paper appeared. History repeated itself, and with the fourth paper, the heretic was gagged. A year after, his father died, and these Fraser articles were laid aside until the end of 1871, when they were taken up again and published on New Year's Day, 1872, as Munel Pulvelis. From the outset, however, he was not without supporters. Carlyle wrote on June the 30th, 1862. I have read, a month ago, your first in Fraser, and ever since have had a wish to say to it and you, O.G. Nova Vectute. I approved in every particular, calm, definite, clear, rising into the sphere of Plato, are almost the best which in exchange for the sphere of macaulock mill and co is a mighty improvement since that i have seen the little green book too reprint of your conchial operations about two-thirds of which was read to me known only from what the contradiction of sinners had told me of it in every part of which i find a high and noble sort of truth not one doctrine that I can intrinsically dissent from, or count other than salutary in the extreme, and pressingly needed in England above all. Erskine of Linlellan wrote to Carlyle, August the 7th, 1862. I am thankful for any unveiling of the so-called science of political economy, according to which Avowed selfishness is the rule of the world. It is indeed most important preaching to preach that there is not one God for religion and another God for human fellowship and another God for buying and selling that pestilent polytheism has been largely and confidently preached in our time and blessed are those who can detect its mendacities and help to disenchant the brethren of their power. J. A. Froud, then editor of Fraser, and to his dying day Mr. Ruskin's intimate and affectionate friend, wrote to him on October the 24th, 1862. The world talks of the article in its usual way. I was at Carlyle's last night. He said that in writing to your father, as to subject he had told him that when Solomon's temple was building, it was credibly reported that at least the ten thousand sparrows sitting on the trees round declared that it was entirely wrong, quite contrary to received opinion, hopelessly condemned by public opinion, etc. Nevertheless, it got finished, and the sparrows flew away and began to chirp in the same note about something else. End of Book Three, Chapter Two. Recording by Cheyenne Arrowsmith.